Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for letting me those beautiful ears. And if you're watching this on video, which you should be, thank you for those eyeballs today. I go to Trinidad, Tobago, or really the Bahamas, but banking off of Trinidad, Tobago with Mr. Jared Best Mitchell. Jared, what's happening? Good morning. Good morning, Victor. How are you? Yes, I'm all the way in Bahamas, but yes. Repping my amazing country of Trinidad and Tobago every single day. I love it, man. I love it. By the way, we, this is the, I've been trying to get you on the podcast. It's been my fault. So I apologize for that. I finally got you on the podcast. I want you to start out by letting these folks know why they should just tune in at this point to listen to what you have to say. Because video is the number one way that you're going to be able to reach your prospects in sales. And I am a master at it, having done over 6,000 videos, personalized videos on LinkedIn, two connections with a 40% response rate. Really? That's a big number, man. 40% response rate. Yes. That is amazing, man. Give them a little background about who you are, uh, your, your sales background, what you do, and then let's jump into how do we prospect in just a bit. Oh, well, I think you will enjoy me saying this. Nothing happens until a sale is made. Sales is the most important department in every single organization. I've been in sales my entire life. I've done nothing else. Um, working first for a telecoms company here in Trinidad and Tobago called Digicel. Left there after five years. Went to work DHL for one year, which is to tell you how much I love the color yellow. Um, I went to um, Nokia after that. Then I spent six months at Microsoft. Then I finished my corporate career with three years in Samsung, growing that business and now for the last, going on four years, I've been a sales consultant here throughout the Caribbean, helping people sell better. So it's funny because, you know, we both come from a telecom background, right? Same. So, I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. Uh, but I came from that background. So, I mean, it's always an interesting sale, right? Whether it's transactional or B2B, it's always an interesting sales process. Like what got you interested in sales though? I mean, how did you make a transition into sales? I mean, what happened to you? Man? What, by the way, what happened to you? <laughs> I would go back to my, I would go back to my, um, report card book where all my teacher says talks too much. That, oh, oops. <laughs> the, Little did way, they we can, know. We can end that right there. We can yes. end that right there. I don't know what you mean exactly. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Little did they know I was just forming to be a great salesperson, but just like everyone else, I fell into it. However, it was really at Digicel. When I told myself, Jared, you, you can do this. You really have a knack for this and we need to start being really serious about it. So I would always give kudos to, to that company, but, um, I literally, like most people just fell into it and realized that it was something I truly love. And in particular, what I love was when I'm the underdog and I could switch somebody's opinion to mine and get them to understand the benefits of what I'm offering. Like that is what I enjoy. I'm truly, truly competitive. But where did that, you know, so, so zoom back. Cause I, by the way, when you hit the report card thing, the reason I laugh so hard is because man, I, I, so that was always on my report card. Talks too much, talks too much. I have, yep. I had like ADHD. So, so when someone like, give me the story of the person that says, Hey, you know what? Would you like to come into sales? You know, and just walk me through that story. You'll gradually take your time on that one. Cause I, I always like to hear the, the Genesis story, the come up story. 
because everybody just, you know, brushes over that. But I think it's always important to say, you know, what was I thinking at the time? What were people telling me and why did I need to do that? So I decided, so I started working for Digicel in their retail stores and I was truly having fun at it, doing a lot of sales, helping customers. And the true change came when they had an opportunity in their corporate sales. So I was switching from B2C to B2B. The interesting thing was there was a rule at the time that you could not take somebody from B2C to B2B. That was the rule that Digicel had with their dealers. But I convinced the person in HR to give me the interview. So that was my first, that was my first sale. And then something that's always worked for me throughout my entire life is that I have really great self-talk. So even before Digicel job, when I would go to parties, I would be sitting on in the car on the way to the party. My name is Jared. You want to know me. My name is Jared. You want to know me. And I said it for like 30 minutes on the way to the party. And as you would believe, everybody would want to get to talk to me. I would talk to everyone because I just developed that mentality. So when I got the interview at Digicel, I'm sitting next to another guy and this guy's there talking, yeah, I have my degree and da, 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 blah, blah, blah. And I'm just there thinking, this is not your job. This is my job. And I went into the interview. I was so, I actually got hired on the spot, which was actually funny because the meeting started off with my manager who then called in the sales director, who then called in the HR manager. And everybody at the same time just said, Okay, yeah, call Richard, who was the guy that my boss in retail, and I just heard him on the phone. Yeah, Richard, we, we understand the rule, but we're taking him. We're taking him, okay? Thanks. Thanks, Richard. Bye. Click. And that was it. And it's like, you start tomorrow. And that's oh, when what? I knew, okay, I really, truly, I can sell myself. I could get people excited about the idea. I could position myself well. And as I said, that I honestly tell you is where I, I truly started in terms of sales. So, so I want to go back even further. And so let me see, if I was talking to your parents right now and they would describe you as, as a young man, for example, you know, at the age of 10 to 14, somewhere in that range, you know, what would they say? Very hyperactive. About, you know, about your personality, you know what I mean, about who you are at the time. Oh, well, personality-wise, I was friends with everyone. What would so they I was, say? Well, I, I want you to tell me, what would they say? Try to think of your They parents. would say, my mother and father would say, He's too distracted. He's too hyperactive. And mm. if he put his energies in the right place, he could be great at everything. Mm. That's, mm. that's what they would say about me. And overall, of course, but normal, every parent, his grades need to be better. You're not doing enough in school, Jared. But that, that's what my parents would say. That's interesting. And, and so, you know, you, you're, you're going through high school. I take it you're a talkative person like me, right? Uh, you know, I actually was more introverted in my first couple of years of high school. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere, I think more in college is when I started coming out of my shell, so to speak. Oh, no, but was that, like, that wasn't, that wasn't the case for me. Mm. I, so I'll give you an example. When I mean, I knew everyone, you know, some people would just lie in certain cliques. I lie with all, doesn't matter what gotcha. type, what race, what income bracket, everyone right, knew right. me. It was so much so that there was a day I was absent from school. And when I walked in the school the next day with a letter from my mother to say, hey, hi, Dean, I was absent yesterday. He said, Best Michelle, what do you have to say about that fight yesterday? I, I was absent. No, no, no. They said it was, it was Best Michelle and his friends in the fight. I was like, um, sir, this is my letter from my mother that says mm -hmm. I was absent. I right. was not involved in this. But because right. I used to hang out with everyone, everybody just associated me with anything that happened in the school. So That's much funny. so that when 
so I, I try to figure out when you're probably doing the transition from high school to college. Um, in the Caribbean, we have like form five, then you go to form six. My mother missed that meeting. So she went to the dean and was sitting with the dean and asked the dean, what does my son have to do to get into form six? And the dean just calmly said, if Jared gets, as they say, straight A's, we still won't let him back in his school. He's like, Jared is not only a troublemaker, he's the project manager, the instigator, the coordinator of anything mischievous that happens in his school. And right, I'm just right, there in right. shock like, no, mommy, that's a lie. And then he proceeds to pull out a book, not just from our school of complaints, but from the <laughs> school next door, which is our sister school of complaints from them. And I'm just there in shock. I'm like, I, I know these people. I know who did these things, but I didn't do it. I just hung out right, with right. everyone. I was just that individual. All right, man. You're starting to sound like Shaggy. It wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't me. <laughs> that's too funny. Too funny. So, 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 you, so you get your first sales role. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I want to talk about the, the, the B2B sales role. Cause I think that, that had to be quite the transition, right? There's a transactional sale where you're in retail, you're working with people. It's, you know, it's about the relationship, right? Making yep. them feel comfortable, giving them great information. Now you move over into from transactional, you move into what I call more longitudinal sales, which is a longer sales cycle. You know, how was that transition for you? Was that difficult to do for you? For the first three months, um, in Digicel, yes, it was difficult. For the first, I think, three to four months, I actually did. I did not hit target. I was struggling. But at the same time, it was me just trying to learn to walk. It was trying to me crawling at those stages, just learning as time went along. Um, but as I said, I, w- I eventually developed a mindset of always wanting to learn. And mm-hmm. I was frequently asking questions and I was frequently testing stuff to figure out what actually worked or not. So, so much so where... I'm, I always remember this day, there was a, and this is just to show the age of how long I've been in sales. I remember just literally calling the entire page, the, the business page of a, in the phone book, and everybody said no. And I right. just stopped at the end of the day, and I'm like, this doesn't make sense. I'm clearly doing something wrong. There has to be a better way to do it. And I asked the questions, and I started to become better at it. And as you say, over time, by the time I left Digicel, which was at the fifth year, I was in charge of their public sector and I was growing it by 28% per month. But that only took time because I continuously practiced, tested, and was always willing to learn. So when you compare, I think you're in a position to kind of make this, you know, really make comparison. You've seen people who haven't succeeded. I think you've mm-hmm. implicitly told me the answer. I guess I just want you to say it explicitly. Yeah. What, what was the difference, man? What was the difference between people who came into that position and said, I made it like yourself, and then those who didn't make it? Well, I actually didn't allude to that. I would tell you one thing, and I'm teaching it now in the, in the training that I'm doing now. Belief or conviction in what you sell and knowing that it can help your customer is one of mm-hmm. the biggest things that a lot of salespeople miss out on. If you are just doing a job for a job, it's going to be ridiculously difficult. One so of let me that- ask you a question. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm going to interrupt you only because I really want to go deep on this because yeah. I, I think you're, you're on to something I really want to dig. We Sometimes we go over this too quickly. Having a belief in a product or system, how do I develop that? Well, let's say I'm first, I'm selling right now out there, Jared. I'm struggling. Mm-hmm. And then I hear you on this podcast going, yeah, you just got to have belief and confidence. Well, well, damn it, Jared, how do I get that? How do I do that? Well, one, I think it comes from looking at what it is that your customer needs to achieve. And if you understand what your product does, then you would see the benefits in it. So one, start talking to your customers. But number two, which is something I've always done, 
is you need to start talking to the product people, the people who've created the product to understand why they actually did it. Mm -hmm. So that to me is actually where a lot of salespeople fall short. They literally don't spend time trying to understand the product. They only spend time just trying to sell it. And they don't spend time trying to understand why the customer wants to use it. So therefore, they cannot create that bridge of belief. Because even if, for example, not every product a salesperson can use themselves, but if you understand how the customer uses it, how it benefits them, either financially, any, any aspect of their lives, then you could have that conviction and belief to explain to them, listen, I know this can help you. But a lot of persons don't spend that time. They literally just take a job for the salary and they just go through the motions of selling. And I think that's why some of them fail um, in the short run. I, I, I love that phrase. I, I never heard that phrase. So I, I love that. So thank you for mm -hmm. the yeah. bridge of belief, you know, creating that bridge of belief. Let's spend a little time here because you're hitting on something that I, you know, I don't really dig with in a lot of people because if you can't get that right, the rest doesn't work, right? Exactly. And so, so give me an example. Walk me through. How do I build that bridge of belief? Like, like give me a tangible example. Like, Victor, okay, here's the product as we sell it. Here's the product you sell, but here's what it does for the customer. And unless you understand that connection, you won't sell effectively. Give me an example of something that you went through like that. You first understood the product, connected it to the client. Victor, this is how you build that bridge of belief. So I think, and actually I'll, I'll give you this like overall example and then get into that. So for my entire sales career, for all the companies I worked for, so when I switched to Digicel, all my family switched their phones to Digicel because I believed in the product. I got them excited about it. So I think the first step that anybody needs to understand is that you need to be enthusiastic about the outcome. If you're not enthusiastic, you're going to run into problems. The other thing that you have to understand is what is the path or in other words, what is the process that gets the person to get in your product or service and actually using it? And that's, I think is one of the, that's essentially that part is where you create the bridge for the person from you introducing it into their lives for them actually seeing it in motion and getting excited about the outcomes that you've created for them. And they'll still go back to when you understand what your product knowledge is and how it applies specifically to the customer. That's how you start building the belief. So it might not happen from the first sale. It might not happen from the second sale, but if you consistently do it and you start seeing the success your customer is coming from, getting from it, then you start to say, oh, oh crap, okay, this really is like an amazing product. This really is making a key difference in their lives. And I think that's the steps that you need to take. And Digicel formed that for me. And then what happened after is every other job that I went into, like my friends would always say, I'm, I'm almost like a cult leader. Any job that I went into, all of a sudden, everybody around it was talking about it because I got them excited about it. And I know John Barrows was the guy who said it, which I fully agree in. Sales is a transfer of enthusiasm. If you can't get your customer excited about the outcome, then it's going to be difficult for them to be excited about making a purchase. And again, yeah. all this just stems from, do you have the belief? Do you understand the product knowledge? Have you seen what your product can actually do for customers? And if you haven't, you need to spend time doing that if you want to be better at sales. Yeah, the great Zig Ziglar said, I was in, uh, sales is a transference of enthusiasm and emotion yeah. of how you feel about the product. And, and so... Let, let's kind of dissect this just one more, just go one more yeah. layer. Cause I think we want everybody to get this because it's easy to say, Hey, you need to start out with enthusiasm to which I would ask the question. Okay. What begets enthusiasm? What gets me enthusiastic? And what you're saying is that it's what I've always said is that if you love your product, that's great. But what you really should love is what it does for your clients. And if I understand the value it delivers to my clients, 
I can get excited about selling my product. Yep. What would you, what would you add to that or how would you peel that back? Well, I'm a simple person. I, I'm honestly not sure how to peel that back. I would just probably tell the person to repeat the process over and over and observe what's happening. Like just pay attention to the result that your customer is achieving. And it right. applies in any environment, whether it's a B2B environment or B2C, it really applies to any environment once you understand and look at what the outcome you're creating for your customer. You don't necessarily have to use the product or service yourself because even thinking back, um, I used to work in a, in a place that used to do kitchens and, and homes and stuff for people. And I was excited about how you get the kitchens done, but I was only excited because I went to the guys who built the kitchens and understood what the product was. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of persons aren't doing that. They get into a job and they learn the process, they learn about the features and benefits, but they don't know, they don't learn about the outcomes that it's creating for their customers. So they don't spend those specific, they don't spend time learning those details and looking at those aspects. I, I love what you say because you, you, you know, you mentioned something about you don't have to own it. In other mm. words, you didn't have to have a kitchen developed by X or you didn't have to have a pool to actually sell the pool. You had to understand the value delivered. And I think that's where you often hear the phrase imposter syndrome kick in mm -hmm. with a lot of people. They go, well, you know, I, I've never done that. So why would, how can I sell something I've never used or own? But you're highlighting what I think is the, uh, I'll call it, what do you, you're, you're highlighting a hack. Yeah. That even if you've never owned the pool, you can go look at the pool that the company built, go jump in somebody else's pool for a while, enjoy Correct. the pool, see what people, or talk to the customers you're saying, right? And understand what the value is and then, okay, that's how we sell. That's the value we're selling. That's the emotional generator. Yep. Because remember, and it's a great example with the pool. If I, if I don't own a pool, I could probably talk to two or three of the last persons we did pool installations for, but focus on the emotion first. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you feel now that you have a pool? Because there was a reason why you came to us for it. And it could be several reasons. It's to show off on my neighbors that I have a bigger, better pool. Or it's really something for my kids because they're young and I want them learning how to swim. I want them to be enjoying themselves during the summertime. Or it could just simply be because I know adding a pool ups my property value. And it did. Right. So if I right. understand these things and I start asking more and more customers and I start understanding what the trend is, then I could get excited about it because when somebody, when I reach out to somebody now, I know the value message that matters to them. So I, I, I sound way more experienced and I also understand the jargon that they use to describe my product instead of using my jargon to describe my product. And that's one of the ways that you build belief because you'll start seeing the smiles on the customers' faces. They will start speaking about the outcomes that you've never seen because you don't have the product, but you get to understand it. It's, and by the way, this is just not for B2B as well. Like if you're in car sales, you may not own a Benz, but mm. you understand what a Benz does for the individual. So it's just understanding what it is, what outcomes you're creating. So spend time talking to your customers. That, that there's the hack. Spend time there. talking to existing customers. I love that. And so let's use that. By the way, well stated, man. Well, well stated. <laughs> so let's use that as a, almost like a, like a pivot over to, I have imposter syndrome. I'm making mm -hmm. this part. I have imposter syndrome. I'm trying to connect with somebody on LinkedIn, something you know a lot about, right? But I have imposter syndrome. You know, I, I got to reach out. I'm, I'm doing demos, whatever. Let's just say I'm just a, an SDR, BDR. I'm doing, you know, I'm trying to set up these meetings, but I'm, I'm intimidated to call somebody because I've never been a, I'll just say a VP of sales or a director of operations. 
How do I overcome that and start connecting with people on LinkedIn? How can you tie those? How can you help me get over that fear slash imposter syndrome? Because I've never done that. So I would take a page, um, somebody on LinkedIn wrote about it. One of my connections, Charlotte is her name. She's a AE at Salesloft. When she got into her role, what she did before was that exact thing that you described, Victor. She messaged all those VPs and said, hi, I'm really entering into this new role. I'm actually interested in just chatting and learning for you what's important and how you should be communicated with in order to sell better to other VPs in your industry. And she messaged about 10 or 15 of them. And I think a ridiculous amount of them actually responded and told her, yes, and she was able to get the insight in order to be a better salesperson. So it's okay to feel imposter syndrome if you have just started. But as we keep going in with the theme of this conversation, you have to understand your customers. So reach out to persons, but be specific on this though. Tell them, I'm not, I don't want to sell you. I just need to understand how you prefer to buy. That's what I need to understand. I need to understand how you prefer to buy or how you prefer sales reps to approach you so that I can reach out to other persons. And I guarantee you, those persons will be one of the best mentors, buyer mentors that you can ever have in your sales career because they'll continuously give you insights. I love that because you're saying, okay, reach out to people maybe you don't know and you'll get lucky like like Charlotte mm-hmm. did, right? And a couple of people will respond. But I, I think you would also agree that there's probably people you know who are in that position. Why not yep. talk to them? I think that's, I, I love that you're hammering home this message because I don't think we talk about this enough. Is that how do you get over that? And so when you're reaching out for the first time, you know, how did you, I mean, you come from a very confident background given your, your history already. I know that, right? So I know this is not a problem for you. But if I'm just starting out as an SDR, BDR, you know, let's say I do that, that don't get a lot of responses. You know, how would you coach me to kind of really get out there? You know, let's say I'm, you're onboarding me, mm-hmm. Jared, right? I'm, I'm coming to your company. You're onboarding me. And, yeah, you know, walk me through how you would help me in the first, let's say, 30, 60, 90 days to really start leveraging, for example, LinkedIn and really right. make connections. So, of course, we go with the, we go with a proven framework. So, number one. I'll show you what the top SDRs and AEs are doing. Then I'll actually let you listen in on those top calls that they have in terms of specifically how they're introducing themselves, how they're getting over objections, how they're booking meetings, how they're closing the sale. I think for the first 15 days, you need to spend time doing that. Then what I would do is give you some low-level prospects to test and reach out to, to practice either sending out video messages to them or just doing cold call outreaches and see if you've taken what you have learned into that aspect. The next 30 days now, we will go back and actually then I would actually start product training, as weird as it sounds. Because I want you to actually see what people are talking about, be confused, and then let the product training tie the message in together. Okay, that's what they meant by this. That's what they meant by that. Because what you'll start taking now is, again, the the actual sales conversation and words use the jargon into your product training and then the next 30 days will be your product training and then on the 60th day is when we start you actually doing some calls then what i would do now is just monitor the level of those calls in terms of your success rate and as i say tweak as we go along by of course recording the conversations replaying the conversations highlighting what they're doing good and just keep showing them the best practices and i love what you just said so first 30 days study the best what the best of the best you're doing right Next 30 days, actually, you know, study the product, become dominant. Now that you know what some of the questions and objections are going to be, you understand the product. 
next 30 days. All right, let's get into it. Let's start, start doing this. Let's start coaching. Let's start monitoring. This is probably why people hire you all the time, right? Because you're no, this but good. This is, so by the way, that one of the products of doing the listening to calls and then product first after was only this week that I got the idea. Like literally yesterday, because the group that I'm training already went out on the road and they came in today for, and they came in yesterday for the training. So their perspective was different to the first group who had the training with me. Then they went out on the road. So Wait, say that again, because I think I'm confused. So, okay. Oh, sorry. So group, group I'm, one, I'm, did... I'm, I was training two groups. The first group, they started doing the sales training with me. Then they went out on the road to see how the sales were done by the current team. Then the team that I had yesterday, they already went on the road last week. So they are now doing the sales training today. So it's two different perspectives that they have. And I think, honestly, this group appreciated what I was teaching more because they saw how they can group apply two. it out in the field. Group two. Yes, they appreciated group it. Who went out to the field first. Yep. And so now that you're doing the sales training, you go, oh, you're, you know, if you think about that, that kind of makes sense, right? Because if they do the sales training first, then they go on to the field. When they're doing the sales training, they don't really know how it's going to apply. But if they go out on the field and they get their asses kicked, if I can put it that way, yep. right? Then when you come do the training, they go, oh, that's how I avoid getting my ass kicked. That's well, how, that's so yeah, shit. this is how I could put the pieces of the puzzle together. And what yes. they do, they were following the top reps and the team leads. So they were seeing the best examples of what to do, which is great. So to me, yeah. I think that's a, I, I think I may propose that as a better strategy going forward for some of the companies that I'm working with, especially if they have new sales reps. By the way, there, there, there was one study I read and it was just one study. So it's not, I can't. Yeah, it's not a meta study. It's just one study that I found interesting that, that kind of validates what you just said. And that is in the first 30 days, they just have them make calls, right? They just have them make calls. And what they're trying to do is get them to form habits. Number of dials, work the script. Number of dials, work the script, work the script. Obviously, they're going to, again, they're going to have their asses handed. Don't bug put it that way. And then they actually get into the actual training. And yep. it seemed to be more sticky because they go, oh, yes. And so I, you know, I'm just trying to validate what you're saying because I think it is a better approach. They go out there. And what they found is that they wanted them to develop better habits in the first 30 days. And what they found is they had a second group who they did product training with first, Jared. It was interesting. And what happened was in those first 30 days, they were so focused on the product, they'd never really developed the habits for prospecting and reaching out. And so group one was actually more successful because they've developed the prospecting habits. Yep. They were getting, again, a lot of rejections, but they were dealing with them because that was their job. They were told this is what's going to happen. And I think so. And I think especially when you look at, when you, when you speak about the imposter syndrome, I think operating in that approach reduces the imposter syndrome because they would have seen everything firsthand in the examples. And now they get the product training to help alleviate any concerns that they have so they could go forward making calls even more confidently than they did before. So I think, honestly, I, I may propose that as a new way to train when I'm doing new reps going forward. What have you found along the lines of training here? Because uh, it's always learning process. What you're learning right now is like, okay, maybe I should do this first and that second, right? What have you found in terms of if I said, you know, I, because one of the biggest challenges a lot of companies are going to face in the future here is if they're having a high churn rate is bringing on new people, right? Onboarding people. Mm -hmm. What are some strategies or techniques that you use to get people to, I guess, be onboarded faster, learn the material, the content faster? I don't know. That, that, that's a tough one because, um, again, I know I saw some trainers talking about this the other day where they were saying 
90 days is too short of a time to onboard reps to learn the product and be good. But I think if there is a constant coaching mechanism in place, so in other words, I'm just thinking it may be better if you onboard a rep, put them on, do 30 days of onboarding, but then the next 60, 90 days are only spent where they do half their sales and the other half is actually reviewing the calls and stuff that they made to improve going forward. Because I know onboarding time really differs depending on the industry that you're in. And I think the thing that's missing for a lot of companies, and I wrote about this on LinkedIn, is that the coaching aspect, I think, is what's missing in a lot of organizations. That is what keeps messing them up in the long run of why they have tuned. So, for example, um, I always tell persons this, training for me is a firework. It's, a, it's, it's great. It's, oh, it's attractive. Ooh, ah. But then mm. it disappears quickly. Right. Even if you spend, like, on average, I spend probably six weeks with a company once a week. But that disappears after time. But coaching, spending time in the field, in actual practice with them, creates a longer effect and creates a higher ROI. And I think if that is implemented quicker into the sales process, it would work. Because think about this, Victor. When mm. they onboard quarterbacks in the NFL, do they, do they say no, they have to wait 90 days before they play a game or do they immediately play? Yeah. Well, so even, even, if it's, yeah. even if it's a novice, even if it's somebody who's never been in sales, they can still put them out there because there's constant coaching. There's different coaches for different things. I just think in sales, we keep missing that. We just have a manager or a sales admin. So I think the only way to onboard is to have coaches to help. So and I'll, I'll go deep. Let me go deep on this. I think there should be, depending on the job, there should be coaches for everything. A coach to check out your tone of voice, a coach to help you on your analytics. A coach to help you with your tech because tech onboarding is up next big issue in companies. You need a coach to help you with your outbound outreach. You need a coach to help you with your video outreach. You need a coach to help you with your um, mm -hmm. your messaging outreach and email because remember, we're doing different cadences and multi-touches. So I think if you have persons with those specific skill sets, it works a lot better. But because think about it, uh, and I, I posted about this, Andy Reid, who's the head coach for the Kansas City Chiefs, he has almost 30 people on his team. Why are managers trying to do just one? That's why I'm bored and fails. It's because there's no one to support the person going through the role. It's probably, I'm, I'm sure most persons are left to the hands of onboarding to an experienced AE or SDR or the manager. It's never where is somebody who's super specialized in one thing to train them, coach them, onboard them, and then keep, and then the overall sales data analyst coaches looking at the figures and, res and, and the results to actually give them feedback to say, you're doing well in this, you're doing well in this, but we need to bring in the video coach because your videos aren't doing that well. So you bring in the video coach to help you this week. We don't. That's what impacts on board into me. That's it. It's a fascinating concept. I'm listening to you intently here, by the way, uh, because I'm going, yeah, I never looked at it that way. It's a paradigm shift, right? Because you're right. Um, my question was going to be, how can managers be better coaches? But then you trumped me by saying, wait a minute, can, you're basically saying, can one manager be the ultimate coach in all these different aspects? Impossible. Yeah. That's really interesting, a perspective. But that, that, that creates a, like a conundrum, doesn't it? Because if you're a large company like Salesforce, for example, you could probably hire 30 different coaches to use that, to use your analogy. But if you're a small, medium-sized business, you can't hire 30 coaches. And so but that, that, you can that, hire, you can outsource five people who can help you with certain things. Or what you can do is find the most important metric that you want to improve 
hire an external consultant for a short period of time as a coach, three to six months, to work with your team and you can see the ROI from that specific result. So therefore, instead of having eight, 10 different coaches, there's one coach for one specific activity and they're looking for improvement in one specific outcome. Like start small. It doesn't have to be a full team, but even with a manager with a small team of 10, it's impossible for a manager to coach the existing team and onboard a brand new person. In addition to achieving all their tasks and looking at all the numbers and doing all the other management tasks that they have with the team, it's not possible. It's, 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 it's not fair. Correct. I like that. Yeah, this is, this is a good conversation because what you're saying is uh, we focus on some, we identify high leverage activities, the ones that give me the big ROIs, right? And yep. then we can just start coaching there at a small level. But then you, you kind of raise another question now, which I think is an interesting one. You said, uh, it's a good conversation, which is, you know, what should be the ratio from manager? You say, you know, manager can't handle 10. So what's the ratio? What would you, you know, finger to the wind, scientific wild ass guess, as they say, a swag. Uh, what would you say the ratio should be for manager to salespeople? That I'm not sure of. And I think that is hard to determine because again, it will all be based on the industry, the product that you sell, and also to even the sales cycle. Let's so, say it's a complex product. Let's say it's a complex product. These a long sales cycle. Average deal size is half a million to a million dollars. Hmm. Manager to manager to sale. I'm put. I'm pushing you here, man. I'm, get, I'm getting a number out of you one way or another. So you better give me what. No, but I no start with ten. Start yeah, with I'm, ten. I'm, but I'm, I think I think the the you see the more reps you have, the more complex it gets. Because remember, you're not only managing the reps; you're managing their different personalities. You're most ma- you're most likely managing the different territories that they're also taking care of. So different things come into play, but I would say a safe number to always look at is probably anything from 10 to 20 persons. Anything above that, depending on the industry, will be too much yeah. work for the manager to do to deliver the results that you want. Yeah. I mean, I would think that if I had a sales force, which I've had in the past, and then I had to manage people, uh, I would manage, but the, what I was doing is I was managing, I had like 40, 50 salespeople. So I was managing five regional managers. It kind of filters down. So I work with my five right. regional managers and then the regional managers work with their three to five or seven people, depending on the distribution. Uh, but I don't think we've ever had more than 10 manager to salesperson ratio. Because if you think about it, if you want to spend time, at least sometimes you got to spend time on the road. By the way, I know that's a difficult question to answer, by the way, because if there's a lot of time on the road, well, that means I can spend less time with other salespeople. So it's a really hard number depending on what the mix is, but it's a very good question you're bringing up. And the whole concept of having, you know, a different coach for different aspects because the manager can't know it all. Yep. Because how it works, right? SBR or AE gets promoted to a manager and they're like, here's how I used to do it. That's all I know. You know? And so when you're training sales companies, you know, what, what are some of your biggest frustrations when you're training a, a company, you're training their sales teams, what are some of your biggest frustrations and how do you handle some of those? Just pick one or two. The biggest frustration I have, unfortunately, I've had two companies that did the opposite, so they were my favorites, is companies who train everyone versus just training the teams that actually will execute what, is, what they're taught. Because I, I, I don't like being in trainings where, because we all know the ratio. If there's always a percentage of persons that won't do anything with the training, and there's always a small percentage that will do great stuff with the training, and then there's a the big group in between are the ones who just, they will do small results. But I'm always upset with companies because they will tell you, Victor, I don't have the budget for training. 
And I always tell them, but you don't need to train everyone. Can we train the top 20%? So I've had companies who did that. Like they literally handpicked who they knew were going to give them the best RI because they had the data to show it. And the training was absolutely fantastic. So that is my first like major pet peeve with companies and training. You do not need to train everyone. Contrary to rumor, you do not need to train everyone. Do you realize I'm going to get a lot of feedback on this one? I'm going to get a lot of feedback on this one. What you just said is almost heresy, man. The borders on, you know, the, the torches and the pitchforks are going to come out for you, man. Because they're going to go, what did he just say? Did no. he just say not train everybody? Is that what Jared just said? Yeah. Just train the best of the best? Is that what Jared best No, Mitchell hold on. Said? Not train the best of the best. Train the best of the coachable. The, the best, best who you know are going to execute what is thought, what, what, what is thought because that's where... That's where you get the greatest RI. Then you can probably, with that RI earned, you can take that revenue and, and reinvest it into training the others. But I don't think you should train everyone. I think, I honestly think training should be earned. You get an additional training on onboarding, but additional training should be earned based on your performance. It should be earned based on your ability to be coachable. If you think I, I deserve training and, I, and you need to train me, those persons are the worst to have in a training session. The absolute worst. They have a horrible attitude. They're always interrupting. They always come in like they know it all. And worse, they never execute what they learn because they still think the way I operate is the best. I don't want that. I want the people who are coachable. I want the people who can execute. So therefore, training should only be done for the people who are actually coachable. It should not be done for an entire team. Dude, that is such a paradigm shift. That is such a paradigm shift. I'm, I'm digging that, by the way. But, no, but and Victor, you know it's here, the numbers. When you look at what the numbers will be from that type of training, right. it will, the, the numbers will skyrocket even more because those, those coachable people who can execute will, will literally double sales. So, I'm just, by the way, I, you know, it's, it's, such a, it's, it's such a novel concept. Do you know what I mean, what you're saying? I, I don't hear, if people have, by the way, I'm sure people have thought about it, but nobody's voiced it. Not that I've heard anybody voice that. You should only you should only train the coachables. What you're saying, yeah. If I can be very succinct, right? If they're not coachable, don't train them. Don't invite them into the training. They're just going to take away or subtract from what's going on in the training. Especially if you're on a budget. Especially if you're on a budget, train only who is coachable. Don't train That's everyone. Interesting. That is an interesting concept. And so, you know, have you started doing that? And have you seen some results with that? I mean, I'm, no, I'm yes. sure you feel rich. You feel the difference. Well, tell me about that. Because I mean, this is such so, a yeah, yeah. interesting so, approach. So the last company I trained was, an, was a car insurance company in Trinidad. And they specifically picked the individuals for the training. The first sign that you saw where the training was making an impact, the manager for all of them came to me the second day and said, I have so many emails in my inbox from the team about getting their updated databases because we were talking about ICP the day before. Like you immediately saw the changes. Every single day, there was something new. So at the end of the training, the manager was bombarded with all the different things that the team needed that she had to support with so that they could go out and execute in the field. So a couple of those persons who were in the training, of course, being sales, they were at, they, they're in different levels in the company as in, so because it's insurance, it's like, it's like diamond, ruby, platinum. And there was like 20% of those who were in the bottom level, they jumped up to the middle level when they weren't forecasted to. And two who were in the middle level went up to the top level when they weren't forecasted to either. So you saw the outcome, which means that those persons produced 
about on average a combined probably half a million extra in revenue from the training and what they paid me was minimal. So the RI was instant. What, so, I, what, I, what, I, lo- what I love about this, this thought process is that you, you're not equating training. Top performers are not necessarily coachable. You know what I mean? In fact, one point could argue that top performers are rarely coachable because they know it all. Correct. You know? And so really what you're saying is indirectly say, okay, I don't want a top performer, assuming they're not coachable. I'm sure there's some top performers who are always coachable, right? Yeah. There's, there's a special, special elite group that even if they're hitting their number, they're like, okay, I want to get better. I want to get better. There's always that percentage. But you're also saying that you're looking for coachability and it's a nice, it's a nice paradigm shift. I think what you're presenting or what you're talking about, you know what I mean? Let's look for those those rough nuggets that really want to make it, they're hungry to go to the next level. As you say, ruby, diamond, platinum, yep. whatever it may be, and moving up. And so when you're, you know, the, the feedback you got from the salespeople who are coachable, what, what type of feedback were you getting back from them? Uh, maybe at the end of the day or end of a couple of days with trading, what did you get from them? Not the so, manager from um, As always, you, you get a lot of them saying thank you because you changed my perspective on sales. You, you really added value to what I do, but... What you get is a massive level of engagement. You know, sometimes you're in a training and you always have to single out people because they're quiet. Nope. Everyone was participating. Everyone was asking questions. And something that I love in my training, a lot of people challenge things because, Jared, why, why, why would you do it this way? I would do it this way. Like, it was so many individual, detailed, back-and-forth conversations mm-hmm. throughout the entire training. And I don't think that would have happened if it is that they just decided to train only the top 20%. Because by the way, that's what they, that's what they, that's what they originally did. So based on how their organization is with Ruby, Pla- Diamond, Platinum, they only used to provide training for the first two. I actually got them to include the persons at the bottom into the training because I said, let's get the coachable ones and the ones who you see the potential. Because why, and it's the same point, why bring a top performer if they do not want to be there, if they do not want to be in training? Great. Leave them out. They're making your revenue. Let's get the ones who we can squeeze additional revenue out of. So, yeah. And, 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 I, and I love what you're saying, again, indirectly, is that the, the group dynamic changes, right? Because it, the, it, it, it was amazing. Victor, it was literally one of the best trainings I ever had. It, it was at the end of last year. So it made my end of year absolutely amazing. It was so great to have like all that feedback, all those different types of discussions. And me. of course, you saw people two, three weeks after still messaging you saying, Jared, I just tried this and it worked. I just wanted to give you an update. So thank you so much for introducing that to me. Jared, I just ran my first email campaign and we got so many different responses and, and offers from it. So mm. that's what makes me smile. And it wouldn't have happened if you just decided to put everyone in the training or whoever your top 20. Yeah, so, so do me a favor. Mm-hmm. I want you to hover above your sales training that day, right? Mm-hmm. Just hover above it, right? And psychoanalyze the group dynamics, right? Do you know what I mean? Like analyze the group dynamics, why it changed compared to what you used to do. Now you're hovering above this new one. You go, oh, look at all the things that are changing. Can you do that? So expand for me. What do you mean by group dynamics? Can I get an example just so I can understand? Group dynamics is uh, people felt more safe to speak up because, do you know what I mean? That's what I'm talking about, the group dynamics. group dynamic. The group dynamic, honestly, was the manager because she's very straightforward and she, again, she, she, she's excellent at knowing who her team was. 
like the different mm-hmm. like the different characteristics and the personalities. Mm-hmm. The other thing that made the group dynamic change is that she calls all bullshit because mm-hmm. she in the training, for example, I would um I would give an example of a sales strategy, and somebody would say, "Yeah, Jared, I I do that all the time," and she said, "No, you don't, because your revenue has dropped for the last two years." Damn! Ouch! She was calling him out like that. Immediately. And she kept reminding them, I know your stats. And she said, you don't because you're not asking for it. I know your stats. So whatever you say here. So it happened like three, that four created, times. So that created uh, you got to be honest. Uh, you got, you it know what I mean? It created the honesty for everybody to come out and be open and be vulnerable and say, this is where I think I need help. Or can you explain this more for me? Because I think this is applicable to my business. And it really See, I, made the training like, very um very customized because the feedback that I had before the training through a survey that I do applied with what I kept learning every day. Like for example, I did a training for a similar company last year and I did over a hundred slides. So because it's a similar company, I thought, great, I don't need to duplicate these slides. I had to create another hundred slides. Because there was so much different nuances, as you say, dynamics involved. And perspectives that I had to make sure and show how do you do it from a, a sales side of things. And as I said, I think that's what really made it the difference. As I said, that feedback, the selection of the persons and the manager, it was a perfect combination. I, I love the fact that the manager is there calling out the BS, right? Yes. That's one. I, I think also, and, and I guess I wanted you to kind of add a little more flavor to this. When people became more, I'll say, I don't want to use the word vulnerable. It's not what I'm looking for. But they were open to saying, I don't know how to do this. And they felt safe or okay. You know, talk to me about that environment, how, how you were able to keep, because you got to nurture that the right way. That's where you as a sales trader, that's where some of the skill comes in because you have to keep that openness going, right? So, so talk to me about that. How do you create that safe environment where people just tell you what they, you know, I'm here, I don't know how to do this. And then how do you keep it going? It doesn't happen from the first session. But I think if you show them through research that you understand where they're coming from and what they're trying to achieve, you create the openness. But I think it goes back to the main factor of you have to bring people who are coachable. Somebody who thinks that they don't need any help mm. will not be open. They wouldn't be honest. They wouldn't be that kind of contributing person in a training. Everyone in this training was, as I said, because they were selected, they were open to getting the feedback of where, where they were yeah. doing wrong and how to become better. Even... But so how like, did you, I don't, I don't want to interrupt, but I, I need to get this because I know it's there and I, yeah. and I want to really value what you offer. How did you pull them in? Do you know what I mean? How did you mentally pull them in so they can start giving you some real world, here's where I need help. How does Jared Best Mitchell do that? How do you pull them into the conversation when they're still a little scared? I don't know. That's a good, that's a good question. Like if I think about it, I, I could tell you, I'm honestly not sure. I don't want to say it's because my training is awesome. I think that's just too much of a vague answer. But yeah. I, I, I honestly, I honestly not sure. I think it's probably just my personality and probably how you ask the questions in particular that mm-hmm. get them to bring it out. But I, I, I can't say I have an answer for that for you as yet to figure out how I did it. I, yeah. still, I, I, mm-hmm. I guess that's why I was asking you to hover above yourself and look yeah. down. Because I think what you might find, knowing what I know about you, is that one is that your personality is very nice, it's very warm, it's very inviting. Two, I'm sure you're asking questions. Three, I'm sure you're 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 trying to make them be the hero, no matter what the, what they're failing at, right? You say, "Yeah, we can do this," right? And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get. Is like you know, 
I'm sure if you were to analyze what you do, there's probably a lot of subtleties that you do to pull people in. And, you know, I guess I want you to really think about that. If I can, you know, share I that with to, you. I, 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 need to get, I need to get back to you with that answer. I think that's a really good question. Because I think what happens is like when I, when I do training, the, you know, and I have people who start saying, well, I don't think, I don't know how to do this. Then I'm saying, well, let's break this out. I said, because it's really not that hard. And then it goes, A, B, C. Now, now tell me where you're struggling because somebody else in the room is struggling. And I always say that somebody else in the room is struggling. Yep. So by me working with you, I'm also helping people who don't want to admit that. And I say this out loud, actually. And you know what other people are thinking? Like, yeah, I'm glad he's doing that one. You know, and then I always make sure that whatever example I go through with somebody, I make that person look like a hero at the end of that. Yeah. Even if they didn't get it perfect, right? The script and whatever may. Anyway, th those are things I do. And I guess I was, I was trying to pull some from you, like maybe I can learn I, from you. Like, what do you do? I don't know. I, I just think, it, I honestly just think it was the conversations and, and how I position the questions, but I would still say it was the actual individuals being open to learning. I think that that to me was the key dynamic combined with the information being shown to them because what I think always throws off a lot of people, especially for when you're training the Caribbean, they're shocked at how much research you, I do. Right. And how, and more importantly for me, how quick I could create context for their market specifically. So, so I, I mean, think those are, by the way, those are two things. One is that you studied their industry too. You created context for their situations. They go, oh, yeah. he really understands me. So that's part of making them feel comfortable. Like he gets it. He understands yeah. it. He knows how to work with us. And then your conversations, you know, going through that. Cause I think but it's that's hard. Why I said the, that's why I said the training material wasn't generic. It was like, like I can't even use those hundred slides for anyone else. Mm -hmm. It yep. was like super specific to them, even broken down. Like again, the Ruby diamond platinum persons, like it was specific to them, their specific sales process and how it should look now, all the different types of conversations, how to run an email campaign cadence to generate sales. Like it was dead specific to them. Like I, I can't use it anywhere else. And I think that research and again, not only showing them the new information, but how to do it as well was super key. So for example, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't always, I don't do, I don't ever do training by myself ever. I always bring in experts, just like I mentioned before. So I'm not an expert on email campaigns. I brought someone in. I'm not an expert on SEO and digital. I brought someone in. So it's just to show them from a perspective where I want to bring people who could relate specifically to what you do and give you the exact know-how, like step-by-step -step process of doing stuff. And like one of the best breakthroughs was a lot of them didn't actually have their Google My Business page set up. And like we were setting that up for them. And that was like the biggest excitement because they, they understood from the training before why the Google My Business page was important. And then they understood how to use it for their business. So everybody was literally like, I need this done today. We were in the session. Oh. It was like everybody, every single person was like, we and need that, to get this done today. So And, and that interactivity builds that, you, I build their confidence, but then they start liking you more. Yes. And then they, they start, start understanding that, yes, I do know what they, I do know what they're trying to achieve. It's just that a lot of them didn't know what it was that they wanted to achieve. And I was able to show right. them not only what it was, but how to get to it. So, I mean, I, I mean, so those are the notes I would have answered with that, you know, I yeah. try to show them what to do so they know step-by-step how it works. I, I take them through something experiential, like, building the, the, the Google page, right? Like that, they can do it. You know, I mean, those are the things that you do that are very subtle 
that if you were to analyze your own presentations, oh, these are all the things I do to pull them in, man. So I'm trying to give you more credit for what you do. And just don't know, it's trivial. There's stuff that's going on and doing with them. So uh, uh, two final questions. Um, uh, if you look at the companies, like what type of companies do you typically work with? So anybody listening to this podcast, you know, um, whether it's in the Caribbean, the United States or worldwide, um, what is your like I, ICP, ideal client profile? Here are the companies that I like to work with, Victor. Here's kind of what they look like. And so if somebody's listening to this, they can reach out to you. I would honestly say right now, my ideal client profile are for companies who are specific in the telecoms industries, both B2C and B2B, and in the insurance industry. I have, I have honestly spent a lot of time researching insurance on all different levels, and I know how to help your reps and your team actually sell better to your customers. It is, is one of the things that in particular with insurance is something I truly, truly enjoy. If I had to say what my ICP, were, ICP was, it would be those two um, specific categories. Telecom insurance. And last but not least, tell these folks where they can find out more information about you and all your wonderful content. Oh, nice. So um, my website, jarbestmichel.com. And of course, you can always find me on LinkedIn. Um, where I always do my best to try and send as many video messages to my new connections as possible. That's one of the key, key things, um, key areas that you can actually find me. Those are my two main areas. I should, because I know you would, you would buff me for this, be angry. I would get my YouTube and stuff up running where I take all my video content and put it across on my YouTube channel this year. That's being done this year. <laughs> well, you got a lot of, you got a lot of video content out there anyway. Uh, check out Jared Best Michelle. Just check out his LinkedIn profile. Check out his content. Uh, follow him. Uh, one of the things I love about Jared is also he's he's a he's a he's a consummate reader. He's always yes. reading everybody's content. He's always posting pictures of the books. But also, you know, he highlights what he likes, which I love. And I also like the videos that you create. They're very personal. So Thank follow you. Jared Best Michelle. Do you say Michelle? Is how do you how do you say that? Michelle. Michelle. Michelle, best Michelle. Yes. Jared Best Michelle. The, the information will be on the YouTube channel. And after you check out my man. Check out the Sales Velocity Academy. Got some new courses, new master classes. Having fun with that. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio, always reminding you that selling ain't hard when you know how. Take care. Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow up and insights that modern businesses need to win. 